Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it is a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning, and especially to open the Word of God with you. Uh, today, I want to share a message that is very close to my heart. It's a message that has struck a chord with me for a number of years, and I believe that it's a message that applies to every single one of us sitting here this morning. It's a message that has to do with setting our mind on the things that are above, keeping an eternal perspective, especially when trials and difficulties and challenges and obstacles come into our Christian life. Before I bring your attention to the text that we'll be covering this morning, let me just say that I think it's safe to say that many of us have had our share of difficulties and challenges. Great or small, we understand this because we live in a sin-stained world. We also live in an unstable world. And for some, that instability can seem insurmountable. Well, this morning, I w what I want to do is I want to do what's on the heart of every preacher, and that is to lift you up with an encouraging word from the Lord. What I hope to do is to help you to regain your perspective and to regain what is the most important part and focus of your Christian life. That is to have a biblical perspective, especially in light of the difficulties and challenges that come into our Christian life. To be frank with you this morning, the only way that I know how best to encourage you is to direct your attention to the infallible, unchanging Word of the Lord. And that's what I want to do this morning. No doubt, whenever we're faced with discouragement and despair, we begin to lose our perspective. And what we really need most is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, do we not? How we do that is by finding refuge in the Word of God. No doubt there are many passages that we can go to to find comfort, to find security. And if you're like me, there are certain passages that seem to always come to mind. Those are the ones we need to run to, and we need to run to often. Passages that not only remind us of God's sovereignty and His love and His mercy and his care, but they point us to the one place where we need to go for true hope and a sense of true spiritual revival. They remind us of how important it is to set our affections on the things that are above and not on the things that are on this earth. They are the ones that seem most applicable when our minds are needing to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, for me, one of the most important and comforting passages in all of Scripture is the text that I want to focus on this morning, that whenever I'm tempted to give up, to give in, and immediately become discouraged, I want my mind to be focused on Christ. And there are passages that direct us in how we ought to focus our attention. 
Well, it's here that I find my greatest encouragement to maintain the right perspective. The passage that we're going to deal with this morning reminds us that if there is one thing true about the Christian life, it's that difficulty and discouragement will inevitably be part of our life. And so we need to remind each other that as a true disciple of Jesus Christ, we must maintain the right perspective. We must stay focused on heaven above. And especially when those difficulties come rushing into our lives like an unrelenting surf of the sea. Let me be crystal clear with you this morning. Those times of discouragement, despair, those times of difficulty and those challenges will come. And that's because trials and hardships are unavoidable. How do we know this? Because this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And he said this to his disciples in John 16, He said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. Why? Because I've overcome the world. James chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that we need to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The truth is this, it's not if we encounter those trials, but when that makes them unavoidable. The question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, are we ready to face those trials when they come? Because those trials, those difficulties, those hardships, those tribulations, and those persecutions, they are all part of what it means to live the Christian life. And the most significant question that I want to address to you this morning is, how are we going to face those trials when they indeed come? And what perspective are we going to have when it comes time to deal with with the content of those trials. Well, the one place I know we can go to learn how to deal with adversity is to the writings of the Apostle Paul. This is because Paul was a man who learned how to endure life's difficulties for the glory of God. The one thing that Paul would proclaim from this pulpit here this morning is perspective is everything. This I know to be true. If our perspective is not right, then we won't know how to navigate those difficulties when they inevitably come into our lives. And so let me ask you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives us a very personal insight into his own life and ministry. And three times he makes reference to this epistle, to the hardships and affections or afflictions that he's had to deal with as a slave of Christ. After giving a brief and personal testimony in the first part of this chapter, he then drives this point home by telling us what we need to do in verses 16 through 18. And for our time this morning, I want us to focus our attention primarily on these three verses. 
Because in verses 16, 17, and 18, this is where Paul gives us three principles for dealing with life's difficulties. The first of these principles is don't let what is physical distract you from what is spiritually renewing. Don't let what is physical distract you from what is spiritually renewing. In other words, focus on the spiritual and not on the physical. The second principle is don't let the present blind you from what awaits you in the future. Another way of saying this is focus on the future, not on the present. And then finally, principle number three, don't let what is visible and temporal keep you from seeing what is truly eternal. In other words, we need to focus on what is truly eternal and not on the temporal. Because this is the encouragement and challenge for those who must not lose heart. If you put each one of these principles into practice, this is how you will maintain the right kind of perspective concerning your Christian life. And you won't lose heart. My prayer for all of us here is that if we learn how to internalize these biblical principles and we apply them directly to our life, especially when the turbulent storms come rushing in, this is how we will navigate our way to safety and the security that God alone provides. Again, not that we'll avoid the trials, but with God's help, we will know how to navigate through them successfully as we walk faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we focus in on each of these principles, I'm going to read the text for you. And then I'd like to briefly set the context of the passage for you. Again, if you have your Bibles open, follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter 4 in the book of 2 Corinthians is a very pivotal chapter, and it's a pivotal chapter in Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians, as you may or may not know, is actually one of four letters that Paul wrote to this troubled church. Two of his letters, which are inspired by God, are recorded for us here in Holy Scripture. After about a year and a half of ministry in Corinth, Paul left the city to go to minister to the church at Ephesus. Shortly after his arrival at Ephesus, he received some very distressing reports about the church at Corinth. And based on what he wrote in the letter we call 1 Corinthians, he addresses some of those concerns in order to help them spiritually. We know that Paul wrote an initial letter to the church, which he referenced back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 
But it was during his third missionary journey that the church then wrote back to Paul and asked for his counsel on a series of important issues. As a result, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in order to respond to those issues. Well, at the same time, Paul was unable to then go and visit the church. So he sent his son in the faith, Timothy, along with perhaps the letter of 1 Corinthians, to assist the church in resolving their issues, their problems. At first, his instructions seemed to be a huge help to the church, but shortly thereafter, a much more dangerous threat came into the church. False teachers claiming to be true apostles infiltrated the church. They launched an all-out attack on the apostle Paul, and they questioned his credibility as an apostle. As a result, many in the church were led away from the truth. But when Paul heard about this, he immediately left Ephesus to go and visit the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he called that visit his sorrowful visit. It was a visit that really grieved Paul to the core. Apparently, there was one individual in particular who had openly attacked Paul's credibility. And at the time, the church refused to confront the offender. Because of this, Paul was filled with intense grief and intense sorrow. He left Corinth, he returned to Ephesus, and that's when he sat down to compose what he called his tearful letter to the church at Corinth. He then had it delivered to Corinth by way of another one of his son in the faiths, and that was Titus. Titus delivered this letter of Paul's to the church in Corinth. Well, when Paul left Ephesus, he made his way north to Troas. It was there that he tried to meet up with Titus to find out how did the church respond to this tearful letter. Sadly, that meeting never took place. It was in Troas that Paul then had a tremendous opportunity for ministry. But still, he was very much concerned about the church at Corinth. When he failed to meet up with Titus, that's when he decided to leave for Macedonia. It was in Macedonia then that Paul finally caught up with Titus. And when they finally got together, that's when Titus told Paul that many in the church had repented. Many of them had responded positively to the message that Paul had sent to them. We can only imagine what kind of joy came over Paul when he got this report from Titus. Most significantly, though, this is when Titus told Paul that the church had reaffirmed their commitment to the truth of God. To Paul's dismay, though, Titus also told him that there were some of those false teachers who were still entrenched in the church. There were some who continued to question Paul's credibility as an apostle of Christ, and so from Macedonia, and most likely from the city of Philippi, Paul sat down and wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians, to defend his apostolic ministry against the vicious attacks that came against him. He knew that all he could do was to remind the church of what God had already done for them. And so not only did Paul reaffirm his love for the church, but Despite the false accusations and the malicious attacks, Paul reminded them 
that he and his companions were not discouraged. They weren't discouraged. That's when he wanted the rest of the church not to lose heart. And we see that in chapter 4, verses 1 and 16. Well, it's here in 2 Corinthians 4 that Paul then takes a decisive moment to reflect on these present difficulties. He concludes his thoughts by giving the church one of the most important principles concerning the Christian life. And that overarching principle is stated very clearly in verse 15. Notice it. This is what it is. Ultimately, our suffering is meant to accentuate the grace of God. That's why trouble is brought into our life. As Paul puts it here, it's to cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Think about that the next time you endure hardships or difficulties. That God allows this to come into your life so that you can be a testimony of His saving grace and that the giving of thanks can abound to the glory of God. This is the purpose of our present sufferings as we endure as slaves of Christ. In other words, our sufferings, our difficulties, our trials, they are all meant to achieve one single purpose. They are meant to glorify God in the midst of a sin-stained world. They are meant to spread the grace of God to others for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the giving of thanks may abound to the glory of God. And this is where we come to verses 16 through 18. And and it's with that context in mind. Paul says, in order for your thanks to abound to the glory of God, here is the perspective that I want you to have so that you will not lose heart. First, don't get sidetracked by the physical hardships that seem to overwhelm you. Don't get sidetracked by them. Focus on what is truly spiritual. Second, don't be blindsided by your present difficulties. Instead, focus on the future. And then finally, take your eyes off of what is visible. What is visible is temporal. Instead, focus on what is truly eternal. Because when you do this, not only will the perspective your perception of your circumstances begin to change. But when you do this, you will find that your mind will be set on the things that are above and not on the things that are on this earth, which is where our mind needs to be fixed in the first place. Amen? This is what it means to have the right perspective as a believer in Jesus Christ. And right here, Paul tells us perspective is everything. It's everything. And so now, if you would, look with me now at verse 16. Now, we're going to go through these principles briefly, one at a time. Again, the first principle that we need to stay focused on is don't let the physical difficulties distract you from what is truly spiritual and renewing. Paul puts it this way in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. The first principle here begins with having the right 
internal perspective. The right internal perspective. In other words, it's having the right state of being as a child of God. Another way of saying this is that you and I need to learn to focus on the inner man rather than being distracted about what is happening to the outer man. Why do we need to have that kind of perspective? Because as Paul puts it here, ultimately the outer man is decaying. He's decaying. The inner man is always being renewed day by day. The outer man here is a translation of what is really the outside of a person. It's a word that has to do with the exterior part of man, the physical body. And what Paul is saying here is, don't get focused on that part of yourself that's in a continuous state of decay, but rather stay focused on the immaterial part of you, which is your spirit, because that is what is going to last forever. Why should we have this perspective? Because as a Christian, we know that our inner man is being renewed every single moment of the day. And not so with our outer part. Not so with our outer body. When Paul says that our outer man is decaying, many people have the tendency to think that he's referring to just the normal uh, physical process of dying. And that's definitely part of it. But given the greater context of this text in this book, what he is really referring to here, Paul says, is the exterior part of man that's being worn out for the cause of Christ. On a physical level, every single person is in the process of dying. Every part of our body is in the process of physically decaying and going back to the dust from which it came. But as a slave of Christ, there is also a, the physiological hardships that are directly related to those conflicts that are associated with ministering for the gospel of Christ. Those physiological hardships have everything to do with suffering for the cause of Christ. And if you want to read a graphic description of the kind of hardships that Paul has in mind here, you need only turn to chapter 11 of this same epistle and read verses 23 through 28 to give you a greater example. Because in chapter 11, he goes on to describe all the hardships that he's had to endure for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't hold back when he talks about suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, we don't have time here this morning to go through all these sufferings in detail, but in short, Paul was a man that was physically beat up, worn down, all for the joy of serving Christ with every aspect of his physical life. Every time I find myself going through a trial, I'm reminded that I need to put myself in Paul's shoes and consider seriously what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because the truth here is our trials and sufferings for the cause of Christ, these are what are going to affect us physically. And Paul says here that those physical difficulties are going to have the opposite effect on the inner man. Instead of wearing us down 
and discouraging us, Paul says, my inner man is what? Look again at verse 16. My inner man is being renewed. It's being renewed day by day. I love this because Paul knew that the internal and immaterial part of us was far more significant than the external comfort and security that most people seek their life to possess here and now. He knew that the day was coming when he was going to have to lay this carcass aside and exchange it for something far more substantial. And that's because he was living every day as if the moment of his glorification was about to arrive. The application to this principle is, are we? Are we living our lives that way? Likewise, you and I must be encouraged to live every single day as if the day of our glorification was right around the corner. Paul took great comfort in knowing that what was really important was not only was not his own physical security, but the sanctification of his eternal soul. Paul knew that his inner man was what was truly going to last forever. That along as he had suffered for the cause of Christ, this meant that he was going to have to die to his outer man. Clearly, Paul wanted to live just like Christ. Paul knew that the reason for his affliction, look at back at verse 10, was so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Again, Paul had such clarity in his perspective. He knew that the physical hardships would never cease so long as he lived in this earthen vessel. But he, as he says in verse 7, each and every day was another opportunity to learn that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We must never lose sight of that perspective. So here Paul says he wants every single day of his life to be renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And no doubt Paul passed along those principles to every single church that he had the privilege of being involved in. In fact, Paul told the church at Philippi, the city from which he wrote this letter, he considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. He made it absolutely clear that he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And this is what he wanted every believer to know in terms of their sufferings for Jesus Christ. He wanted to know the fellowship of sharing in that suffering so as to conform to the very image of Jesus Christ in his death. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we have that same perspective as Paul? Do we really understand what it means to live for Christ Do we really understand what it means to suffer like Christ? Or are we trying to shield ourselves from those trials that God brings into our life? Make no mistake, God is the one who allows trials to come into our lives. And just to drive the principle home by way of application, consider this one foundational truth. When we are weak physically, 
when we are at the end of ourselves and there is no other place to turn but God, this is when we are finally at a place where we can be made spiritually strong. This is why at the end of this wonderful letter, Paul wrote these amazing words. He said, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm what? I'm strong. I'm strong. The principle that God is driving home for us this morning is don't let the external difficulties distract you or keep you from focusing on what is inherently internal for the Christian and spiritually renewing. In other words, remember that God always has a divine purpose for those trials that he allows to come into your life. He's using those trials to bring you to a place where you can be most dependent upon him and not on yourself. For when I am physically, emotionally, and psychologically at the end of myself, I have absolutely nowhere else to turn to go for help other than God. Paul says that's exactly where you need to be. That's exactly where God wants each one of us to be. Because then Paul says that I'm spiritually strong. And again, the principle is this. Our perspective must be spiritual. It must not be physical. Every day could be the day that I finish my race for Christ. Just around the corner would be the day of glorification. And that then brings us to principle number two, which is found in verse 17. Not only do we not want to let the physical difficulties distract us from what is spiritually renewing, but don't let the present difficulties blind you from what awaits you in the future. Why? Look at verse 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible. Not only did Paul know that the physical sufferings would make him strong spiritually, but they also had the effect of securing his heavenly reward. When we suffer for Christ, and I mean when we do what is right before God and suffer for it, we must learn to view our earthly existence from a heavenly perspective. Our momentary light affliction is the means that God uses in our life to safeguard our future reward. And again, that is such an amazing statement by the Apostle Paul. Paul's afflictions, if you know of those afflictions, you know that they were constant. They were physically intense. And yet, it's, and yet he says they were also momentary. They were light. They were light. What do you mean, Paul? Another way of saying this is they were easy to bear and truly insignificant compared to the reward that was waiting for me in the future. In other words, our hardships here are nothing in light of the reward that awaits us in the future. This is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, we don't seek to please men because we don't seek glory from any man. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 
He said, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why, Peter? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From the world's perspective, the Christian life is an anomaly. It's so strange to the world. The world looks at us and says it is completely abnormal for anyone to experience true joy and peace while at the same time neck deep in suffering and trials. Even still, the Bible tells us our sufferings in this life are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So every word that we speak, every decision that we make, every action that we do has an eternal impact on our heavenly reward. In sharp contrast to what we endure down here, what awaits us in eternity is quite literally the manifestation of the glory of God, Paul says. As a Christian, we must remind ourselves that there is a direct connection between suffering in this life and the glory that awaits us in the next. Why? Because the two are part of the exact equation that unlocks God's purpose for our Christian life. As we suffer for Christ here and now, there is also this ever-increasing capacity in us to, the pra- to praise and glorify God in all eternity. That's why we can sing with such joy the last song that we sang. Praise God. Again, the Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. In other words, we need to get into the habit of thanking God for the problem of our pain. Amen? And when the piles of trials keep coming into our life, rejoice so that when the glory of Christ is revealed, you may glory in Christ and may rejoice with exceeding exaltation. Whether in your job, your home, or your relationship to others, persevere in doing what is right before the Lord. Learn how to rejoice now because the day is coming when you're going to rejoice with exceeding exaltation. Now look again at the end of verse 17. It's because the eternal weight of glory that awaits us is far beyond all comparison. I love that final phrase. Paul says, you and I have no idea what kind of eternal weight of glory that we are going to receive from our momentary light affliction. Yet for those who suffer for doing good, what is truly right your eternal reward will be far beyond all comparison. Literally, the phrase here is hyperbole to hyperbole or excess to excess. It's a phrase that Paul uses here that exceeds all limits. You and I cannot even fathom what glory awaits us. It's a phrase here again that exceeds all limits. One commentator put it this way, it is beyond the possibility of overstatement or exaggeration. And you and I have absolutely no way to describe the glorious inheritance that awaits us in the future. So Paul says, don't let the present blind you from what's ahead. 
Fix your eyes on Christ. And for that beleaguered Christian who may be sitting here this morning, this is the strongest expression of our complete confidence in the future glory that awaits us at the coming of Christ. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. To put it another way, the difficulties of this life are minor compared to the wonder of our eternal salvation. So God says to you and me, do not let the difficulties that are right here in front of you wear you down spiritually. Don't let them blind you from what God has prepared for you in the future. Focus on the eternal weight of glory that awaits you. And then finally, principle number three in verse 18, don't let what is visible and temporal keep you from seeing what is truly eternal. Look at verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Throughout these verses, Paul has continued to make one sharp contrast after another. The first contrast was between the outer man and the inner man. The second was between our momentary affliction and the eternal glory that awaits us. Now, finally, in verse 18, it's a contrast between the things which are seen and the things which are not seen. In verse 18, the difference between the things that are seen and unseen is as great as the expanse that exists between those things that are temporal and those things that are eternal. That is how vast the expanse is. Paul says our perspective must be fixed on the eternal realities and not on the temporal realities of this life. Why? Because this is what we need to work hard at seeing. Keep in mind, fixing our eyes on the things that are eternal is not um, instinctive for us. In fact, everything about this world tells us to do the exact opposite. Not only is it hard to stay focused on what's truly eternal, it's actually, it actually requires painstaking effort on our part to do that. What God is saying here is that our Christian perspective begins when our perspective is readjusted heavenward, not on this earth. And we need to fix our eyes on the things that are eternal. That can only happen when we are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is why repentance from sin, faith in Christ are absolutely essential for having this kind of perspective. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, we're told to set our mind on things above and not on the things that are on this earth. According to Philippians 3.20, we're to set our mind on the things above because that's where our citizenship is as believers. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as a Christian, our home is not here. Instead, it's in that place where God is, where it's endless, it's undying, it's everlasting, it's eternal. That's where we long to be. And so in contrast, when Paul refers to those things that are temporal, he's talking about those things that are on this earth that are destined to perish. And that includes everything that you and I can see with our physical eyes and touch with our physical hands. Paul says all of it's going to fade away. All of it. 
In fact, it's rapidly decaying right before your eyes. Eventually, everything that you see around you is going to disappear. The allurements of this passing world should hold absolute no lasting interest for those who are believers in Christ. Instead, we should fix our mind on the realities that are destined to last forever. For us, those eternal destinies include two things, just two things, the glory of God and the eternal souls of men and women. Our responsibility here is to live for Christ, to proclaim his gospel. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's gain. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said to Timothy, you need to be willing to endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. What is so amazing about Paul is that his passion for God, his compassion for others, is what eventually cost him his life. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to count that cost for ourselves? And first, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we know that this earthly tent, this body, is going to be torn down because God has a better house waiting for us. The reason we should be filled with encouragement is because we walk by faith and not by sight. We know that one day on this most glorious day of days, we will be absent from the body and finally be at home with the Lord. Knowing this, Paul says, whether here or on earth or at home with the Lord, our ambition is to live pleasing to him. And that's our goal. That's our purpose. God has a divine purpose for your trials. He's causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. When trials and difficulties come, they will. We need to remember that our perspective is heavenward. It's not on our circumstances. In other words, our perspective is for the glory of Christ, is it not? We all know the story of Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery. You know that God used Joseph to preserve the nation of Israel as a testimony of his love and his unwavering commitment to his chosen people, Israel. Well, at the end of his life, Joseph made an amazing declaration to all of his brothers that despite what they had done to him, and all the pain and the misery that it had caused. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph had an eternal perspective. Like Joseph, our trials and our difficulties have a way of reminding us that God is using them for his glory and our good. Thomas Watson, the great English Puritan, once said, affliction has a way of quickening our pace on the way to heaven. He said that when God lays men on their backs, it's then that they're finally looking up to heaven. Watson went on to write that a godly man is heavenly in his disposition. He sets his affections on the things that are above, 
And as a result, Watson writes, he sends his heart to heaven before he even gets there. If I can encourage you this morning, when your trial seems insurmountable, recognize that God is the one who has allowed this momentary light affliction to come into your life. He allows it for his purposes so that your perspective would be spiritual rather than physical, that your perspective would be future rather than the present, and that your perspective would be eternal rather than the temporal. And even so, when those trials come, and they will come, may we all, in response to these difficulties, be those who send our heart to heaven before it's time for us to get there. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, encouraging word. We thank you for the joy that is set before us. We thank you that in Christ we have hope. We have perspective. We have the capacity to give exceeding thanks and joy. And we thank you for this time this morning. May you take your word, lodge it deep in our hearts, transform us by it. And because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, may we eternally give him praise. We thank you in his name. Amen.